So uh, let's just take a minute to gather our thoughts and heads and be here. Do whatever that's required for you. And we say, may grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Now, most of you missed our Christmas party. And I don't blame you because the weather was miserable that night. I wore these shoes, which uh, maybe you cannot see on television. And I promised that I would wear them today, but I didn't wear them from the car into the venue. Thank you, Tim Leatherwood, for hosting us at Anderson Fair. I didn't wear them because it was, uh, I was afraid of getting electrocuted. And, and um, thank you, those of you who brought food. Thank you especially to Charlie Burgess, Burris, Andy Black, Emily Wolf, and Keaton Brown, who provided music. And we had the lustiest carol singing, I think, I have ever participated in. Uh, I, it's the first time in my life that I saw a stage performer come off the stage into the audience to congratulate somebody in the audience for being such a good singer. So Gail and Joe Adams, you win a Golden Globe Award for your singing that night. Um, I hinted at the party that uh, I, I had said last Sunday that if you came to the party, I would do something magical. And um, the stage didn't provide for that. So um, here's the problem. I don't actually do magic tricks. I know how to do magic tricks. But nobody likes to see a magic trick. If you walk up to somebody and say, you want to see a trick, no. Most, some of us, not all of you, but some of us as kids went through that phase where we learned something at grammar school and we went home and said to our parents, we want to see a trick, and they would endure it. That's what they did, endure it. And fortunately, most people grow out of that. I didn't. And you know, as parents, you endure when your kids come and say, hey, I saw it, I want to see a trick. And we say yes, but they don't. But here's the thing. I do believe in magic. And um, I'm sad for you if you don't. So I want to show you something today. No trickery, no sleight of hand stuff. Um, I can't promise you that it will work. Um, but um, if it does, we will have a miracle on our hands. Now, I've asked, I thought I saw Arlene Wells. Would you come forward? And, and Arlene, you can just have a seat here, up here for a moment. Um, Arlene, I told you that I would not embarrass you, and I won't. 
What I didn't tell you is that the success of this trick depends entirely on you. <laughs> so if it works, if it works, this place is going to go crazy. And you get all the credit. If it doesn't work, I will slink away in humility. Okay. So, <clears throat> do you know the trick? Well, trick. Do you know the story about Jesus turning water into wine? I can't do that. <laughs> Let's do something else. Arlene, I have here two decks of cards. Nothing else, just two. I want you to select one. Now, there are several points during what you're about to see when you're going to try to backtrack. As a matter of fact, some of you will wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you will say, what if she had? What if? I want you to pick one of these, either one. You want the blue one. You sure? Here you go. Remember, she chose the blue one. She could have picked this one. She didn't. So you left me with the red deck. Red deck. I'm going to put the red deck in this glass right here. And I can't see, but I'm going to take a card and move it over here. Okay? You see what I'm doing? Moving a card over here. When you say stop, I will stop. <laughs> On this or this? This one, you sure? Put that there. So we won't be distracted. I'll turn the red backs out so you can see them. What did you stop on? The eight of clubs. Now, would you come join me? <clears throat> you can sit down over here. Take the blue cards that you selected out of the box. All of them. You can put the box right there. Hold them face down, and I want you to deal them face up in my hands and stop when you get to the eight of clubs. And we'll count out loud till you get there, but it's important to remember the number where the eight of clubs. You tell cards? Eight of clubs. Let's go quickly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 5, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 
Wow. <laughs> and there's no eight of clubs there. No. How did you do that? <laughs> because you see, last night before I went to bed, I took one card out of this deck and randomly inserted it in the red deck so that this eight of clubs is the only blueback card in the red deck. Give her a hand. Thank you. Amazing. You're amazing. As I said, at three or four o'clock in the morning, you're going to wake up and say, what if she had stopped one earlier card or one? Wow. <laughs> At the party, Susan Peterson, by the way, Arlene and I will be in Vegas on weekends. <laughs> <laughs> At the party, Susan Peterson brought a, brought a book and uh, we read it without rehearsal. Where's Susan? Oh, right there. This is delightful. Thank you. It was such a gift. And I asked her um, if I could read it to you today as part of Christmas. This is not all we're going to do. This is a Christmas party. It's called the uh, Jesus Christmas Party. And I want to know his other book. It was just called Father Christmas Needs a We. <laughs> I didn't buy it yet, but I will. There was nothing the innkeeper liked more than a good night's sleep. But that night, there was a knock at the door. No room, said the innkeeper, but we're tired and have traveled through night and day. There's only the stable round back. Here's two blankets. Sign the register. So they signed it, Mary and Joseph. Then he shut the door, climbed the stairs, got into bed, and went to sleep. But then later there was a knock, another knock at the door. <laughs> Excuse me, I wonder if you could lend us another small blanket. There, one smaller blanket, said the innkeeper. Then he shut the door, climbed the stairs, got into bed, and went to sleep. Then a bright light woke him up. That's all I need, said the innkeeper. He went down and looked. Then he shut the door, climbed the stairs, drew the curtains, got in bed, and went to sleep. But then there was another knock at the door. We are three shepherds. Well, what's the matter? Lost your sheep? We come to see Mary and Joseph. Round the back, said the innkeeper. Then he shut the door, climbed the stairs, got into bed, and went to sleep. But yet there was another knock at the door. We are the we are the three kings. Round the back. <laughs> Scared the poor kings. He slammed the door, climbed the stairs, got into bed, and went to sleep. But then there was a chorus of singing that woke him up. <laughs> that does it. So he got out of bed, stomped down the stairs, threw open the door, went round the back, stormed into the stable, and was just about to speak when, shh, whispered everybody, you'll wake the baby. Baby, said the innkeeper. Yes, a baby has this night been born. 
Oh, said the innkeeper, looking crossly into the manger. And just at that moment, suddenly, amazingly, his anger seemed to fly away. Oh, said the innkeeper, isn't he lovely? In fact, he thought he was so special, he woke up all the other guests at the inn so they could come and have a look at the baby too. So no one got much sleep that night. The end. Thank you. <clears throat> and when Arlene and I are not in Vegas, Susan and I will be in an off-Broadway production reading things we haven't read before but need, need to be heard. So thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so my job is to make sure to wake everybody up. As you know, um, as I hope you know, I love puns, jokes, funny cartoons. Sometimes that gets me into trouble. A few years ago when Matt Russell was here, he gave me a t-shirt that he said, this captures your mode of being in the world. And um, actually, uh, in, my, in my defense, I, I have an explanation. I have a condition. When um, I wrote the Christmas letter that we will be sending out, we're going to do Christmas cards this afternoon, right? Um, I, wrote, I wrote a draft of the Christmas letter that we send with our cards, and I put a joke in it. And I said uh, in the letter, we are enjoying living on the 14th floor of our high-rise. We were going to live on the 15th floor, but that's another story. <laughs> I gave the letter to Sherry for additions and corrections. She left the joke in and put in an editorial comment. She simply put parenthesis and said, forgive him, he can't help himself. <laughs> and I can't. There is a program on NPR that I'm a huge fan of. Some of you may listen to it. I listen to it every week. Wait, wait, don't tell me. I love that show. And um, one of their news items several years ago was about a new mental diagnosis that had been added to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. And they had added something to the Asperger spectrum a uh, condition that has a German name that I do not know how to pronounce. As I understand it, this word in German means joking addiction. And part of the diagnostic definition that I am willing in public to read goes like this. A set of rare neurological symptoms characterized by a tendency to make puns or tell inappropriate or pointless jokes in socially inappropriate situations. <laughs> and the rest of the definition is not flattering. <laughs> okay, so I joke a lot, I enjoy jokes, and I brag that I have never forgotten a joke I've ever heard. I think that's true. You name a, you name a category, I can either tell you a joke or tell you a pun or tell you a story in that category. If not, give me your home phone number and I'll call you in the middle of the night and we'll discuss the magic trick and I'll tell you a joke. So if I hear a, a, a joke, I'm likely to repeat it numerous times. 
Um, I usually wear provocative, perhaps borderline offensive t-shirts. This is the one I've been wearing. <laughs> I've got a condition. I mean, come on. So maybe over a, this happened at the Christmas party Friday night. I said uh, some joke, and one of you, I'm not going to point you out, said to Sherry, not to me, you poor thing. <laughs> you have to put up with this. And usually she will say, you have no idea how many times I've heard that joke. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what happens when you live with somebody for a long time. You hear the same stuff over and over. Right. We've been together for a long time, long time. So it's um, bound to occur that I'll say some of the same stuff over and over. And I just hope you love me as much as Sherry does so that you will stay with me and not divorce me <laughs> or put poison in my coffee. <laughs> so here goes a bit that you've heard, but it's appropriate to the season. The thing that combined with my personality that led me to standing right here today was my fear of the dark as a child. Now, I have been blessed or cursed, maybe it's the condition, with a memory that can recall events from when I was two, not stories that I have heard about events when I was two. I can remember things from when I was two years old. I don't remember being afraid of the dark at two. Somewhere around five or six it kicked in and it was an overwhelmingly terrifying time of my life. I had a brother who was six years older than me so we probably grew up in like different families. And therein lay the family secret that my birth was scheduled to overcome. It took me years to figure that out. So I've spent years trying to figure out whether it was fate or destiny or a combination of both that caused me to use that terrifying springboard that background is a springboard to search for ways to live with what this season is all about. Peace on earth and peace with myself. I have read and exposed myself to teachers who might teach me why I was so frightened and why apparently other people weren't. But then I had a spiritual teacher named George when I was um, in, back in the 60s. And um, one of the things he taught me was how frightened you are. He said if you could give truth serum to everybody on the planet, one of the things that they would tell you is how scared they are. We're scared about all sorts of things. What's going to happen to our partner, our children, our finances, our health, our business, our country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So fate and or destiny also immersed me in a pool of deep pool of religion, most of it inadequate and much of it downright wrong, but it became 
part of my DNA. And learning information and gaining knowledge about things that lead people to lead lives that are more full and brave in the world. It's not only been an organizing thing in my life, but it's been so energizing and so enlivening. And learning that stuff is just great. It's like learning the secret to a magic trick. Oh, that's how that's done. And again, forgive the repetition, but um, fundamentalism is putting our nation and our globe at risk. Fundamentalists are people who claim to have the truth while at the same time ignoring facts. So my intention, and I've been thinking about today and where I want to go when we reconvene next year, is to continue teaching about the teachings of Jesus. Now, in no way do I want to contribute to the notion that the Christian religion is exclusive or exceptional. Besides, where would you look on this planet to get a good, clear definition of what it means to be a Christian? Orthodox Christianity? Catholic Christianity? Protestant Christianity, of which there are so many you can't count? The recent division in the Methodist Church is too embarrassing even to bring up. And it is my intention as well to draw insights and teachings from the world of psychology so that we can use that for our spiritual journey. For example, all of life is relational. And all relationships are marked by two dynamics. You and I, right this moment, have a relationship. And that relationship is marked in my mind and in yours by these two dynamics. One of those dynamics is projection, and the other is transference. Projection is when the contents of my unconscious mind leave me and go on to some other person, some institution, some role onto which to fasten, right? I'll give you an example. The family in which I grew up, we were taught that doctors are gods. So when I see somebody in a medical outfit, the projection is just there. They have more authority and more knowledge and, than anybody else. We usually infantilize our relationships to people and institutions. And in the process, we reduce our adult capacity while we approach these people and institutions from our past, not from what is actually going on. So we give to other people and institutions our unfinished personal history. The heroic journal, of which Jesus can be our model, withdraws these projections, which is hard, and encourages us to grow up. I've yet, in my counseling or spiritual direction work, I've yet to meet a person who, when I say, where do you need to grow up, can't answer that question. 
We all know where we're stuck, and we all know where we need to grow up. So, <clears throat> projection is when my psychological contents, both conscious and unconscious, leave me and enter the outer world seeking something, usually a person, upon which to fasten. And transference is when I transfer to someone else my personal history in regard to the kind of experience I'm having. And we usually infantilize that relationship with the other. Now this can be our intimate partner. I understand the former vice president calls his wife mama. It's a projection. Oh, we're really good at projecting and transferring onto pets. If you got a pet, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I have a cat, <clears throat> or a cat has me. That's the way cats are. And that comes and says, while I'm working, you're sitting on my keyboard. And um, I move the cat, and we have a conversation all up here. It's projection. It's transference. We call it Mother Church, Fatherland. I cannot stress how important it is to become aware of these two dynamics. Now, if you're going to be here, I want you to experience that you gain from these times a greater sense of purpose and that you gain the tools and insights. And this is, again, to repeat something you've heard before, to be involved in the process of becoming a center of love, honesty, and freedom. Now, this sounds simple. It is not. It sounds simple because... I want to make it as clear as possible. But clarity is not the same as simplicity. Now, I do not believe that you are here in this room by accident any more than I believe that I am here by accident. My job is to seduce you into coming back. But I want to be open about it. And I want to seduce you into coming back because dealing with these issues is hard. And if we all knew just how hard it was, we wouldn't come back. We'd go do something else. If each of us could have been handed a script about what our life would be like right before we left the womb, we read it over from first to third. We wouldn't have left. We would have read about the bankruptcy, about the fatal illness, losing our partner, having cancer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I said, no thanks, I'm not going. Now, <clears throat> we deal with Jesus. I'm surprised that this is the first time I've seen this painting by Rembrandt. Are you familiar with it? I'd never seen it before. I read about it in um, work by Stephen Patterson in getting ready for next year's teaching. And um, it's just, uh, it's in a, germ it's in a um, uh, museum in Berlin, I believe. <clears throat> 
We deal with Jesus because if we live in this culture, we're unavoidably given Jesus. And so if we're going to be given Jesus, my plea is let's get it right. And my faith is that we can use, as it was first experienced and intended, the Jesus story to overthrow the power of darkness. Begin with darkness, remember. Primarily, that fear and our fear of lethargy, our, our own lethargy. You know, lethargy is uh, the code word for, oh, he suggested a book, but I don't have time to read that. That's too hard for me. I can't do that. There's nothing I can do about this anyway. That's somebody else's job. Somebody will take care of this. It'll all work out in the end. Whatever excuse we use for not showing up in life is lethargy. So fear and lethargy, they're there every day when we get up and we have to decide how we're going to deal with them. Most conscious people in the world, in the Western world, know about Jesus. Um, <clears throat> people will tell you they believe in Jesus. You put yourself at risk if you ask them to explain what that means. I have done that. And without sounding judgmental, my experience is that in asking people what they mean when they say they believe in Jesus is that they don't know what they mean. They don't know what they believe. They don't know what that does for them. So <clears throat> Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. That's a long time. His life was relatively short, 33 years, they say. Most people in this room are older than that. And no matter how old you are, you still think your life is short, right? You haven't lived very long. Just three years was, were given, according to the scholars, to his so-called public ministry. Many, not everybody to be sure, saw in him a purpose and a power that they attributed to something beyond him. And at the time, in that worldview, they called that something God. And his very existence was marked by those qualities I keep mentioning. Love, honesty, freedom. And people who had been marginalized by society that is, those who wouldn't find a place here, he welcomed. And in him, they found acceptance, joy, forgiveness. He said, in my eyes, you are clean. And those who were warped and twisted in all sorts of ways, by their fears, by their lethargy, found in him peace. Joy. That's what this season is about. He was a real person. And I know that one of the great contributions to my own journey when I was just starting in graduate school was a book by Harry Emerson Fosdick called On Being a Real Person. And then I ran into Rudolf Bultmann, and he said the call of Jesus was to authentic existence. 
He said, don't turn Jesus down because you can't believe in the miracles of virgin birth and resurrection and all that. Turn him down because you hear what he's really calling you to, which is life. Paul Tillich kept, captured it perfectly in, his, in, in one of his sermons. He said, it's the courage to be. Jesus didn't seem to need to prove himself. Rather, he spent his energies not calling attention to himself. He had the ability to give himself away. He gave love and freedom. He didn't put any restrictions on it. He was extravagant. And when he encountered and touched the lives of people, they were never the same. People looked at him. They seemed to look through him to something beyond him, to something that expanded them. I remember one of my teachers saying, we consider saints saints not because of them, but because of how we feel about ourselves when we are in their presence. So they saw in him, the, 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 and in his love, hope for their own fulfillment. Now, here's something that's really ironic. The very things that I keep holding up, love, honesty, freedom, scare people. Real love, real honesty, real freedom scares people. We want to be secure. We want to be in control. We think, I know better. And that's why Jesus was seen as such a threat. It's why they had to get rid of him. Now, if you read the story, which I encourage you to do, lethargy may keep you from it. You see that he died caring for the very people who took his life. How weird is that? His love would embrace anyone, anything. He demonstrated there was nothing anyone could do that would render them, us, unlovable, unforgivable. Now, given that, is it any wonder that when these people came to tell a story about their experience with him, they had to break the language barrier? They took the language that had been applied to and used for Caesar and they applied it to Jesus. They even went so far as to say God was in this man that in this human they had encountered the ultimate. Now how are you going to write a story about that? Stories function much differently then than they do now. People couldn't read. Most people couldn't. So, uh, you know, Holly and I were talking last Sunday about this, and I didn't work this in, but we actually don't know how the Gospels were written. We don't. We know that Paul, the earliest that we have in the Christian collection, doesn't say a word about the birth of Jesus. Mark, the earliest Gospel, doesn't say a word about the birth of Jesus. The scholars assume that the collection of material that we have in Matthew and Luke, and Matthew and Luke copied most of their material from Mark, 
were put together and then the birth stories were put. The birth story didn't really get celebrated in Christian church until sometime in the 11th or 12th century. It didn't start that way. The first big festival to Christian church was Easter, not Christmas. That came with um, St. Francis, actually. So when they did decide to write something, they used this poetic, fantastic language to capture what they wanted to convey. And they said, you know, when he came into the world, even the heavens rejoiced. There were angels that were singing. Kings came from all over the world to worship him, wise men as shepherds. Since God was in this man, surely God must be his father. Then we created a story. It was never intended to be taken seriously. I literally taken seriously yet. But because we think we are so smart, our imaginations have become so earthbound that the imaginations of our souls has become impoverished. That's one reason to have a daily spiritual practice. They said, Jesus was born of a virgin. <clears throat> now, fundamentalists and even progressives don't get this sentence. It is wrong to say Jesus was born of a virgin. It's right to say that Jesus was born of a virgin. Do you get the difference? It's wrong to say that Jesus was born of a virgin and put the emphasis there. That's wrong. It's right to say Jesus was born of a virgin. It's the, the scandal is that it was Jesus in this guy who had no paternity, who was from the absolute wrong side of the tracks. What good can come out of Nazareth? That God would be in Jesus. I began talking about the dark. You know, it's been not that long ago when um, we didn't have these things, illumination. When the sun went down, it was dark. I read a piece not long ago that said that um, even when uh, candles became uh, options, when people couldn't, most people couldn't afford them. Candles were very expensive. So when the sun went down, it went down you were in the dark so the the birth narratives were created when they were created easy accessible light was rare consequently the light that overcame the darkness became a beautiful powerful metaphor for talking about the birth of Jesus You know, I said these stories are political before they're personal. And <clears throat> I don't want to be political, I don't want to be histrionic, but these are dark times. And they seem to be getting darker in a lot of ways. And we need a great light to break in upon us. And then, then, 
We need to be what Jesus called his followers to be, the light of the world. That's on us. So this is our last Sunday to meet this year. Next Sunday is the fourth Sunday in Advent and Christmas Eve. So that's why we have such a short Advent this year. Next Sunday we'll have a worship service at 10, and then Christmas Eve services at 2, 4, 6, 8. Who do we appreciate? I've got a condition. And then the next Sunday after that's New Year's Eve, and though there will be two services, we won't have a class meeting. So I wish you a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And when we gather, we'll pick it up here with more trying to understand and appropriate Jesus for our lives and living. And my wish is that we, me, because it doesn't happen here, it won't happen there, could be touched by him in ever new, increasingly deeper ways. And I don't know about you, but when I have been so touched, it is indeed as if the heavens sing. So my invitation to you, stealing from one of the Christmas carols, is, oh, come, let us adore him. Now you say, okay, how do we do that? Well, we certainly don't do it by claiming that we have the truth, ours is the way, see it my way. And even though I do and will do a lot of teaching, you can't capture this in words. It can't be taught. It's caught. Then we talk in the middle and hope there's some catching that happens along the way. We adore Jesus by building the world where everybody might have the opportunity to live more fully, to experience being loved, to experience the freedom to be, to be who they were created to be. How else can you acknowledge the source of all life? If God, whatever word you choose to mean for you for that reality, if God is as Jesus taught, shouldn't that change the way we live? Not just individually, but corporately, publicly. Howard Thurman, whom I've come to see as one of the most important religious figures of our time, wrote, when the song of the angels is filled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the sheep are back with their flocks, then the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild nations, to bring peace among people, to make music in the heart. Oh, come let us adore him. Merry Christmas and see you here next year. Thank you. Thank you.